thank you everybody for uh, being here for this forum. I want to just offer a word of introduction to uh, Gary, uh, in case you were not here last year or not familiar. Uh, the Reverend Dr. Gary Mason is a Methodist minister, but we forgive you for that. Um, I, grew up, I grew up Anglican, <laughs> so I did. <laughs> That's right. Um, and he directs a transformation organization based in Belfast, Northern Ireland, called Rethinking Conflict. Prior to, he, prior to this, he spent 27 years as a Methodist minister in parish ministry in Belfast and has played an integral role in the Northern Irish peace process, or really the Irish peace process. Also played a key role in establishing the Skynos Project, a world-class urban center developed in a post-conflict society, a model of how to coexist and share space and is acknowledged as the largest faith-based redevelopment project in Western Europe. Gary and his wife Joyce travel a lot <laughs> all over the world. As Gary offers teaching, it draws upon the lessons of the Irish peace process, including the US and the Middle East, where we'll hear Gary talk about this morning, at least in part. He holds a number of academic positions. Of course, the most important of all is a teaching role as visiting professor at the Candler School of Theology at Emory University here in Atlanta lecturing on reconciliation, peace building, the history of the Northern Ireland conflict, racism, sectarianism, and conflict transformation. It's these very lessons from other parts of the world that we seek to learn for our own place in time as we engage Gary in dialogue this morning. So Gary and Joyce, it is such a delight to have you back here on the block and here in Atlanta. Welcome back to All Saints. Um, I'm going to move slightly forward because I know I'm. Yeah, we won't fall edges. off the edge. Yeah, we'll just a little bit. We're not going to play. Yes, right. That's good. So we can all see. Um, I've got a few questions, and I'd like to invite you to um, ask questions. So I know this is from one preacher to another. I'll try and keep the questions brief. And if you could work on concision, okay, I'm I the will. worst person to give you <laughs> advice on that. But um, So I've got some brief questions, and then we'll open up. So the theme for this morning's conversation is justice, mercy, and reconciliation lessons from the Middle East. Now, I know you've recently started taking groups to Israel, um, seeking to build bridges of understanding between your own context of Northern Ireland and the Middle East. This is a difficult question, but maybe just pick up one, one comparison. I'm wondering how you'd compare the struggle for peace between these two parts of the world. Any, any kind of comparison that most that stands out? Yes, I remember I was doing a, a lecture in the Institute for National Security Studies, which is a think tank in Tel Aviv. But interestingly, you know, Simon, it's headed up by a guy called Amos Yadlam, who's the former head of IDF intelligence, uh, mostly ex-military people uh, who bizarrely at times are the most creative thinkers in building peace. And after I'd finished, one person wasn't quite sure of my thesis around peace building. And so I simply asked them a question. And I says, would you say the Middle East conflict has got to do with land, identity, and religion? And they had no option but to say yes. So, you know, most conflicts at the root of them, it's over land. Who does this land belong to? It's got to do, there's some, always some bit of, toxic religion bubbling around there, sadly, and identity. Am I Israeli, Palestinian, am I British, am I Irish? 
I mean, the words we use are interesting, even here. The Civil War, the War of Northern Aggression, the Nakba, the War of Independence. You know, we have an amazing way of using words that suit our particular stance. <laughs> and I'm curious about the, that finding that it was former military by the sounds of it, the folks. What do you attribute, when you, when you did made that discovery, what do you attribute that, that to? In the early 1990s in my context, we had what we called a mutually hurting stalemate, okay? So Ireland, early 90s, almost 30 years of civil war, with fought ourselves to a standstill, statistically 47,000 injuries, 36,000 shootings, 22,000 armed robberies, 16,000 bombings, 30,000 political prisoners, almost 4,000 dead. And I often mention if our conflict had taken place in the US, because we're a tiny space, as you know, 1.7 million people, you would have had in America 800,000 dead and 6.4 million political prisoners. What was really happening there really was that the British government, the Irish government, the IRA, the loyalist groupings realized there was no military solution to our conflict. So we ended up with that very technical phrase, a mutually hurting stalemate. And into that stalemate really became some very creative thinking, uh, particularly by the time we'd reached the 1990s. Um, no matter why you're a Democrat or a Republican here today, isn't it up for grabs at your own personal choice, but being independent about this, I mean, Bill Clinton was superb in the Irish peace process. Uh, there were other mistakes he made, as we all know, but as regards as a peace builder, he was outstanding, as was Tony Blair and Bertie O'Hearn. So you three men in their 40s and 50s, very ambitious, and ambition's actually a, a good thing. I often use the phrase moral ambition. I actually like morally ambitious people. I don't like immorally uh, people who are ambitious. But a moral ambition is good. And these three men wanted to make a difference to that 800-year conflict, and they did. So people from a military context, the British Army were saying, you know, defeating the IRA is very, very difficult because you have community support, particularly within the Catholic community. The loyalist groupings were not going to defeat the IRA, and the British Army could have contained the IRA. Uh, so I often say there's three ways of dealing with conflict. Uh, the first one is, is genocide. Uh, literally, you just do a genocide. Uh, you did that uh, pretty well here with your Native Americans. You did a more or less a genocide on a, on a race of people. The second one is containment. Uh, you contain the problem. And the third one is negotiation. And so thankfully and painfully, Simon, we opted for negotiation from the sort of early 90s onwards. There are, there are some who'd say that the, Northern, the Irish peace process is, a, is one of the most viable models out there, examples to look at at a successful like renegotiation or a path to peace. What, it, uh, is there an extent to which you see that progress under threat today, or how would you assess its status today? I mean, the, the, the B word, Brexit, I mean, last night I was on the phone to uh, Bertie O'Hearn, who was the former Irish Prime Minister, his special advisor, Pat Hines and I work uh, closely together, and obviously we were talking about Brexit and other bits and pieces as well. 
I mean, Brexit has been described uh, as a disturbance in the force, uh, to use the, the, the language of sci-fi. When the Good Friday Agreement was brought about, the UK were part of the EU. No one anticipated 20 years later that they would take this decision. It also needs to be said as well, uh, one of the things behind this, and Simon as an Englishman will agree, is the rise of English nationalism. Uh, does that sound familiar in an American context? Uh, does that sound familiar in places like Poland or Hungary? The rise of nationalism? So there has been a real rise of English nationalism. One of the reasons, again, being deindustrialization of certain parts of England. Where has uh, white nationalism risen primarily in the United States? Much of it has been in areas that were deindustrialized, where people feel disenfranchised. And that has fed into the whole Brexit debate as well. It's uncertain what way it's going to go. I am still hoping for, I mean, I don't want Brexit. I'm putting my cards on the table. I'm a Remainer in that context. But I just hope we get some sort of soft Brexit because a hard Brexit, and the irony is many people now in the British government do not understand the Irish conflict. I mean, they weren't around in Tony Blair's time or John Major or Bertie O'Hearn or Clinton's time. They don't understand the complexities of the conflict. And so the concern on both sides is the Good Friday Agreement was built on compromise. And let me say this, compromise is not a bad word. My marriage works primarily through compromise. Simon and Monica's marriage works through compromise. Marriages don't work through domination. So if one person tries to dominate the other person, sooner or later the other person rebels. And so the Good Friday Agreement was based on compromise. That's why it's such a finely crafted document. Uh, it also has another phrase about it called constructive ambiguity. So sometimes you can see what you want in it, in a sense, but it just allows that flexibility for people to designate themselves as British or Irish or Northern Irish or both. So, I mean, I, I have two passports. I have a British passport and an Irish passport because I was shaped by both those traditions in different ways. I wonder if I can <coughs> dare ask one more Brexit question. But yeah. the, um, <laughs> I think it, it's so complex and convoluted that it, we can struggle to find somebody that truly understands all the ramifications. And maybe all the ramifications can't be understood in, in totality. I wonder if you could speak to the, the everyday, potential everyday implications. We hear about the, the backstop in terms of resisting all the trouble of heading back to a hard border between um, Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. What would be um, the everyday person's concern about um, returning to a hard border between those two countries? The Good Friday Agreement of three strands. Internal relationships in Northern Ireland, north-south between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, and east-west between GB and the island. So one of the key things for having good north-south relationships is the absence of a border. So when you drive now north-south or south-north, you don't even know you're crossing from Northern Ireland and the Republic or vice versa. If we go towards a hard border and we need security apparatus, it immediately says to those from the Catholic Irish tradition that 
the British are possibly beginning to flex their muscles again here in this Irish context. So that is a concern. The other thing as well that has happened is one of the keys to people who were Northern Catholics or Northern Nationalists, with the border gone, I mean, the island was so free-flowing. I mean, there's like 147 different trade arrangements between North and South, 147. Um, so all those are going to have to be renegotiated. So for the very moderate Northern Nationalists who was not involved in the IRA or involved in political violence, they're saying to themselves, hey, I didn't sign up for this under the Good Friday Agreement. I wanted my Irishness recognised. Um, while I may dream of a united Ireland, I was happy enough to stay in Northern Ireland. In the meantime, do we see if that evolved? So really what has happened, Brexit has pressed the fast-forward button as regards the debate around a united Ireland, and that has spooked quite a considerable number of people. So it's so, so uncertain. I mean, the concerns financially uh, are just in incredible. And the sad thing is, Simon, the people who voted for Brexit, many of them were working class, impoverished areas. They're the areas that are going to feel the brunt of this if there is a hard Brexit. There's an interesting thing. Jonathan Sachs wrote this thing. I must actually email it to you called Identity Versus Interests. So Jonathan Sachs would say, most of us in this room are primarily people of interests. What does he mean by that? We, we, we want to live in a liberal democracy. Uh, we want to have a market economy. And while your American identity is important to you, and my British and, and Irish identity is important, it's not the totality of life. But for many people who are impoverished, in your situation or in my situation, identity becomes the totality of life. Hence, make America... Great again is a very nationalistic statement in many ways. I was speaking recently, I did a sermon on Make America Hopeful Again, because uh, hope is a commodity that seems to, th the oxygen of hope almost has been sucked out of your situation, sucked out of the Middle East, it's been sucked out of our situation there as well. So in our context, people who are impoverished, the flag and identity becomes the totality of life. I mean, you only need to look at the rise in Nazism. I mean, you look at those Nuremberg rallies. Many of those people involved in those rallies, because of the Great Depression, came from very, very impoverished positions, and the flag became the totality of life. Now, for the Christian person, our primary identity, according to St. Paul, is our citizenship is in heaven. That's not denying your Irish or British or American identity, but our identities of people of faith are eternal and should supersede any overly nationalistic identity. <laughs> so I, w I do want to get to the Middle East, but I want to just pick up on something in your sermon based on that question of identity and belonging and uh, our identity in Christ. How have you seen it work well? Let's Let's say churches within... Um, Belfast or beyond. Um, how have you seen it work well when churches have been successful in um, fulfilling their mission in the public square? What what have been what which good working examples might we take on board and, and contemplate here? I think one of the key things is this whole concept of hearing the perspective of the other. Um, 
And I think for yourselves, painful and difficult as this may be, so I will just be controversial, maybe the last time in the pulpit, I think actually as a church you should ask someone who would designate themselves as a white supremacist to come and tell their story. Or Simon Gore, and I would have done this with people involved in terrorism, uh, within the IRA. What made you choose what you've chosen? Much as I disagree with it, what things shaped you? Or even people here who know people who think like that. Was it your parents? Uh, was it your grandparents? What shaped that mentality that made you make those choices? Wrong as they were. So I've often said, I think I used this phrase the last time, engagement is not endorsement. So as I look at the model of Jesus, Jesus engaged with numerous people with whom he disagreed. I mean, the classic example is the Roman centurion. I mean, you, you, you know, bring that up to date. Here we have Jesus engaging with a person who's a member of the mightiest military machine on planet Earth in the first century. Here is an oppressor, an occupier, a colonialist, and Jesus begins a conversation with him, but just doesn't begin a conversation, ends up with a stunning phrase, I have not found so great faith in all of Israel. So to ask the person, what shaped you as a person? Why did you do what you did? What were your reasons? Because if I say, I mean, if people change in the context of relationships, and I suppose I want to say quite honestly and openly, Simon, I mean, if the gospel does change people's lives, and I'm assuming most of us in this room agree that it does, so how do you redirect people who hold a white supremacist ideology, who hold an ideology from the IRA or the UVF? It comes about through human engagement. Now, you're not rubber stamping their worldview necessarily. A phrase I used often, and... Uh, Someone once said, everyone's born an original and dies a copy, okay? Because we have this tendency to copy what other people do. This is original quotation from me. If you lock 40 men in a room listening to their own reassuring voices, it's a recipe for disaster. And the problem with many white supremacists here, they're locked in some room on their own listening to their own reassuring voices and they're not hearing alternative worldviews. So how do you, as a church, allow them to hear alternative worldviews? So in the late 1980s, a number of us as clergy began talking to the IRA. Now, we didn't put it public at that stage. Uh, people still criticize us for doing it. But it was part of the beginnings of our peace process. What I was really trying to do, I suppose, in that was to create a moral framework, to be an influencer for good. And we realized... If you're going to stop the violence, the only way to stop it is to talk to the people with the guns. So we had to open lines of communication to people like that. Not agreeing with what they were doing, but saying, is there another way to deal with the issues that have haunted this wretched island for five, six hundred years? So I'm just suggesting those things to you. I mean, like I told the story last time, I was down in the McGrath's church there, Hyde Park in Tampa. They were doing this thing on civil dialogue, and I spoke, and a guy to my right-hand side, white guy, says, you know, Gary, I agree with what you said. I'm just not sure as a church we are ready for some of these really difficult conversations. 
So straight away after that, a, a lady, uh, African-American lady, early 80s, who had actually read the scriptures for me on the Sunday before I prayed, said, you know, Gary, see, as a black person, I live every day with a legacy of slavery. And I let her speak. And then she was finished. I turned to Mr. Caucasian White on my right-hand side. And I said, look, tell me this. How do you feel after hearing this person's story? And he kind of took a very deep breath and said, I think we need to have these conversations. But I said, can I ask you as a church another question, quite bluntly? How in the name of God? Because this woman had been worshipping in the church 60 years. The white guy had been wor worshipping 40 years. I says, how in the name of God have you two people not heard each other's story? And you've been here overlapping for four decades. So it must ask the question, how are we doing church? if we cannot hear the other person's story, who's maybe sitting four pews away from us for like 40 years. You know, so there's a way I think that we need to remodel these conversations. Worship is important, no question about that. The Eucharist is important. But we've got to create spaces for meaningful human engagement. If we are going to change, the other person's going to change, and we're going to understand each other. Otherwise, we just come here, do our bit, it's a package, and we go home. I'm going to offer an opportunity in, in a moment for you to ask some questions. I would offer up, um, I, I think um, Anglicans can have a friendly claim on the Wesley brothers uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, in terms of the sort of our shared roots. But one of the beauties and the genius of Anglicanism at its best, it doesn't always behave at its best. Um, it is this space for difference and to be comfortable um, in cultivating a common ground. Um, I wonder if we could speak about Jerusalem. Um, what, what struck me last, last January, February, making my first visit ever to that city was how, how peaceful it was given um, all that would suggest it could go in the other, other direction. And, and one of the most beautiful images of that were watching school children going to and from school. I mean, that how, how every day, more every day can you get than that? It was kids going back and forth to school, people buying things in the local markets, winding their way through these beautiful alleyways. What did you see? Um, it, it's hard, isn't it, to see behind the news cycle. What did you see and what have you seen so far in your work in the Middle East that would raise up if you like, a, an arc or a narrative of hope for us here or for you back in on the island of Ireland? Wh what did you see? I mean, I think looking at the Israeli-Palestinian conflict at the moment, I mean, it is in deep freeze as regards moving the thing forward. Uh, there's no question about it. That oxygen of hope has been really sucked out of it. I mean, I've probably been there 10 to 12 times in the last five or six years. And, I mean, Joyce and I have had a 1,000 Israelis and Palestinians in Belfast with us in the last seven years. I mean, we just said goodbye there to a group called Kids for Peace, uh, which were Jews, Christians, Muslim, and Druze. Uh, prior to that, we had in a group of very senior Israeli figures engaging with some of our politicians. Prior to that, we had the uh, Jerusalem Institute. And they're really looking at ways, how do we share the city better? There are five things, and I mean, let, let me know time-wise if you need to come across me there, Simon, do. When people come to us, we are not saying the Good Friday Agreement is the blueprint for the Middle East. 
but Israelis and Palestinians end up saying there are invariably five lessons we learn from the Irish peace process. First one is political leadership is essential to achieving peace. That's the first one. So you heard me mention Bertie Ahern, Tony Blair, and Bill Clinton. Now, within the Middle East at the moment, there's obviously no government because they're due an election shortly. So you have Benjamin Netanyahu, and you've got President Abbas. Uh, I mean, I'm not a prophet, but the chances of them doing a deal is pretty minuscule. Second thing they say is that security is really important. Okay? So I understand the Israeli mindset as regards security. And, you know, all of us, you know, want to feel... I mean, when I'm flying home, I want to go through airport security. If I'm in a restaurant in Tel Aviv, I want to feel secure. But the lesson from the Irish peace process, Simon, we only got real security when we dealt with the root causes of our conflict. So Joyce and I, we were there October 2015 when all the stabbing started, when Palestinians were stabbing Israelis continually. So even with all the warfare machinery that the Israeli army have, they weren't able to prevent these stabbings. So you had 14-year-old schoolgirls stabbing Israeli soldiers with a pair of scissors. So real security happens when you deal with the root of the conflict. The third thing, and you've heard this 101 times, Gary, we don't have a partner for peace. The Israelis said on their side, the Palestinians said on their side. And I said, um, do you really think the first time, and I mean, I was the youngest clergy person in some of these delegations, the first time that we met the IRA, it was all hugs and kisses. Do we really believe there was a partner for peace? We were trying to deal with a terrorist organization. So relationships developed out of those as well. So there was no trust in the early days. Absol I mean, how can you trust someone who's been exploding bombs and killing people for 25 years? So that took a while to happen as well. The fourth concept was the futility of violence. So we realized in our context in the early 1990s, you know what, let's go on killing each other for another 100 years. We've already been doing it for 400. Why not do it for another 100? So we realized that violence was never going to resolve our conflict. And the fifth one is when people like you come in. The fifth one was the role of civic society. So politicians assume that once a deal is done, societal healing automatically follows. Nothing could be further from the truth. I have many friends who are politicians. But politicians, by their very nature, many of them are people of short-term vision. The most important thing in most politicians' mind is the next election. And listen, you guys know it best. Us Europeans smile at your Americans and go, good God, like the start of the game, like two years before the thing even happens. So like you live in a different world. Like we call elections six weeks sometimes before they happen. So politicians by nature, people of short-term vision. Whereas civic society, so that theory I think I talked about the last time, the political peace process versus the social peace process. So the social peace process are religious leaders, women's groups, academics, NGOs. So civic society is key in building peace. I mean, we have not had a devolved assembly in Northern Ireland now for two and a half years, over a flurry of differences. And yet we haven't gone back to violence. So people often ask me that question globally, and I simply give them a very simple answer. The reason we haven't gone back to violence is because civic society is the social glue that holds our peace process together. 
So the question I would ask folk at All Saints is, you're part of civic society. What is your concept of social glue in holding the city together? And how does it actually look? So those are kind of five lessons. I mean, I'm back and forward a lot. I mean, I'm back for a conference. I'm involved in this group called the Belfast Jerusalem Forum. Um, we're back there in November, back again in January. I mean, I'm in touch literally with the region. Early 1990s, three peace processes, South Africa, the Northern Ireland, and the Israelis. Most people assumed the Israelis and the Palestinians with Oslo were over the line. The South Africans were painfully moving in the right direction. Most people looked at us and said, those darn Irish just can't get it together. And yet, here we are, 26, 27 years later, we're over the line, South Africa's over the line, and the Middle East is still awash with difficulty. Now, both Margaret Thatcher, the Iron Lady, and Winston Churchill, the British Bulldog, said the Irish conflict is intractable. They were wrong. And it's still a very imperfect piece. It's not utopia. But looking back at our history, we're in a much better place today than what we've been for centuries. I'm going to, um, I'm not sure if I'm trying to be Oprah or something else. I'm going to walk down here. I wonder if we could pick up Gary's idea and if anybody has um, either a question or a, or, a, or a comment about that idea of social glue. Um, perhaps there are ways that you see, uh, have seen through years, All Saints operate in that way as a cohesive um, uh, um a cohesive, um, whatever word I'm looking for, not a, a factor, that's not what I'm looking for, an agent, maybe that's a better way of putting it, in the city of Atlanta. Uh, or maybe there are opportunities that you see that could open up for us to, to be that kind of bridge building, um, reconciliatory force uh, or, or partner in the city. So does anybody want to comment to that or simply ask a question of your own, and I will, I'm just going to offer you the mic so that it can get picked up in the recording. Nancy. I'm intrigued by your idea of inviting white nationalists to meet with us. Um, why would they want to do that, and how would you go about achieving that? I mean, I'm thinking initially if I was in their position, it's allowing them to put their worldview to you and to hear it. Now, I, I suppose you could do a panel together. I would imagine initially, if you do a panel, it would end up too acrimonious because you'd maybe have a white supremacist, a black person, and someone else. But I just think initially to say, we want to we want to understand what you are actually saying in relation to that. Uh, and like some folk may disagree, and that's fine. You know, I mean, I remember doing something in Westminster. Uh, it was a Catholic one, cathedral. Was the, yes, the Abbey's the the Anglican and suggesting that they should be talking to English Defence League. And uh, I remember a, a Catholic priest saying to me, under no circumstances would I talk to them. The thesis being, if you talk to them, you're actually giving them mileage, you're giving them credibility. And I perfectly understand all those arguments. Um, but I think you also have to ask the context. In our context, we spoke to people who were pursuing violence. And looking back on that, not me, but commentators now who understand our peace process would say categorically that that had an influence on those people moving forward. Now, America's putting out Afghanistan. 
sometime in the next couple of years. There are now relationships with the Taliban. There were not 10 or 15 years ago. So do you not believe that your country was talking to some of those people privately behind the scenes? Or, or Israelis talking to Hamas behind the scenes? Let me assure you categorically, the answer is yes. I know that factually. Not necessarily agreeing with them. Are they using interlocutors like Egypt to talk to Hamas and then the Egyptians coming back to the Israelis? The answer is categorically yes. So the only way people redirect is by hearing the person's story and understanding it. And if you're not ready for a forum, seek them out. Go and talk to them yourself, because as I said, I mean, and I suppose you asked the question, that bracelet that all the kids had, I mean, what would Jesus do in this situation? Would he try to engage with the person and change? I mean, do remember, look at the 12 disciples. I mean, Simon the Zealot was a first century terrorist. That's who he was. In Israeli terms, he was a first century terrorist trying to get rid of the occupying army, the Romans. So within the legal framework, that's how he was designated. But eventually, he embraces Christian faith and he completely changes. So individually, begin the conversation or put a small group together in the church and try to hear the person's story. My problem is the more you isolate people, the more they'll listen to their own reassuring voices. So if the gospel does change people's lives. So I suppose the question, main question I need to ask is, can people who are white supremacists find faith in Jesus? I'll leave you to answer that. Or is the gospel only reserved for people like us? The answer is no. I just find a couple of points that you've made during your sermon and today interesting and kind of piggybacking on how we inspire someone to come and speak to us. I think, you know, maybe it's raising the, the voices that are quiet or too scared to come forward. And like we were saying today, how we're going to be ringing the bells, you know, for the children. Doing more of that more frequently across and kind of squeezes in and, and bringing all to the table for that civic society and then they can maybe inspire others to come and have the more specific conversations, if you will. So I don't, I mean, did that come later in Ireland or did that come at the same time during the five, you know, the five points you were making? I just didn't know, was there one that needs to happen more strongly or is it really equal? Does that make sense? I think churches can do things that politicians can't, in a sense. I mean, sometimes they're politicians, it's risky to have these conversations, primarily because they have a support base and they spend an awful lot of time looking over their shoulder in a, in a sense. But the phrase we have often used is, how do we use sacred space, which is what this building is, to create spaces where people can hear and learn from one another? So if you're asking me, John Hume, the moderate Social Democratic and Labour Party politician, who got the Nobel Peace Prize in the late 1980s, early 1990s, began his dialogue with Jerry Adams Ware in Clonard Monastery. So Jerry Adams was the spokesperson for the most lethal terrorist organization in Western Europe. Here we have a moderate politician meeting him where in a pub, in a restaurant, in a secret location, in the redemptorist Catholic priest monastery. That's where those conversations began. 
So I think from that perspective, that is really, really key to allow that to happen. How are you using sacred space? Or what is the role of theology in creating these spaces for people to hear each other? And like, Sam, we've had to wrestle with this. So I mean, I'm not coming at this like, you know, in kind of bland way. You know, I mean, I've seen enough dead bodies and coffins to do me a lifetime through conflict. And have I had my critics through doing this? The answer is yes, for talking to these people. But I've seen too much pain and too much agony not to take the risk. And I'm sure I've made misjudgments along the way. There's no question about that. But if I find talking to a person... So I mean I'll give you an illustration of that. Um, we had Patrick McGee, who's the Brighton bomber, almost killed Margaret Thatcher in her cabinet. Eventually became friends with a girl called Jo Berry, whose dad he murdered in that bombing in the hotel in Brighton in the 1980s. So we had them at the Skynos building, that Simon alluded to. It ended up a bit messy, because some people from my community were angry that a bomber was coming into their church, even though he was coming in with the daughter of a, of a father who he murdered. And they have developed a friendship and a relationship. And there was a bit of civil unrest, a bit of violence, just outside the, outside the Skynos church building. And I ended up writing a blog for Queen's University afterwards. I called the blog, I Know Bombers. And I finished with this phrase. And the conversation that night was a difficult conversation. I said, as difficult and as loud and as perplexing and as raucous as that conversation was, it was not as damaging and as loud as bombs going off in London. So if my conversation or if your conversation allow some person to redirect their lives or at least consider an alternative worldview. So what makes white supremacists think the way they do? What makes the IRA think the way they do? What makes loyalists think the way they do? So they're wired in a certain way. They've heard story passed down from generation to generation. They live in a world of fear. So, I mean, you can lock them in that world forever. Let them stay there. Or is there a chance that if you were to influence some of them, there may be the possibility, maybe, just maybe, you could save a person's life. I think even if that's a minuscule possibility, I think it's a risk worth taking. To offer encouragement in that, and I'm coming over, Larry, it's that there's a new documentary coming out called Clark, mm, I think it's Clarkston, the movie, but it may have another phrase. And we saw the uh, a preview of it uh, a few weeks ago in that documentary is the story of a self-identified white nationalist who, who through relationship, uh, Clarkston's a, um, is, a, is the most diverse square mile in America, apparently, at least we, that's, that's what we claim, um, because of the number of people coming there as refugees from all over the world. And it was those relationships that was transformative and that, that it's, it shares this person's journey uh, from um, that early identification as a white nationalist to, I don't know how they identify themselves at the end of it, but there is this movement toward the other. And just to move toward Larry, as a, this may be um, an invitation or a, a cause for prayer or concern, I don't know, it depends how you think about it. Um, but next year, we're going to be exploring, um, as our nation prepares to make a monumental decision, as is every presidential election, we're going to be exploring 
um, six to eight, eight core questions, um, whether those are from housing to belonging to education, whatever we, we think would be the most prudent, and to invite people to come in to deepen our understanding and widen our appreciation um, of the multiple ways to think of a question, because it seems to me that sectarianism or the, the sort of isolated quarter that we can end up belonging to is a, it's a safe haven for bigotry. Um, or as our bishop says, it's one of my favorite lines from him, I don't know about your house, but in my house everybody's sure that they're right. Uh, it's, a, it's a safe haven to make sure that we're right every time when we never have to be challenged in what we think. So I, I, I find encouragement there, Gary. This may be our last question unless somebody has an extra one. Thank you, Simon. Um, uh, Jonathan Sachs uh, is, uh, I'm, I'm, I love Jonathan Sachs, and his term was groupishness, and that we are, we are plagued with the concept of groupishness, and when we talk about white su supremacists, we are automatically creating a white supremacist, and I'm not one. So we've got, and this, is, this groupishness uh, is an issue that has to be solved, and I think that when we're gonna be doing it here at All Saints, is our interfaith relationships that we're developing uh, with Muslims, Sikhs, uh, Jews, Christians, and, um, and, and non-believers, people who don't believe. And their, their voice is really important, and we include, we've got to include all of these folks because when we're talking about a solution it's, we've got to say, we've got to all recognize our groupishness and then have uh, models that bring us together. And it's a slow process, but it has to be a deliberate process. And we can do that in this country. I grew up in a segregated society, and I think almost everybody in this room <laughs> grew up in a segregated society. And I had a wonderful opportunity at 19 years old to meet Martin Luther King and, uh, and when he gave a speech at the University of North Carolina and he was brutalized in that speech. But there were four or five of us that went to the student union because had free drinks and, and uh, some snacks. And the four of us, it was four guys, we spent for about an hour just chatting with Martin Luther King when he was 29 years old. And I, you know, it, from that, it, set, it sets in me, and I think we, folks in, in the South particularly, have all had experiences that made us realize that we were on the wrong path, and, that, and we found solutions, but Martin King was the catalyst for that. And I think we all remember what the power that he, that his dignity uh, of difference, um, which Jonathan Sachs uses in his book, The Dignity of Difference. Those are the kinds of things we have to face, but then we have to, as a group, in, in small groups, um, make it happen over time. If it's, it's a time thing. It's not something, a snap of a finger, and everything's gonna change. I'm sorry, Simon. And I think, I mean, that goes across, Larry, political boundaries as well. I mean, I'm, I don't know. There are probably Republicans in this room and Democrats as well. Joyce and I leave here. We're going for two weeks just on the Gulf Coast. Then we're staying with some friends in Orlando. We're staying with both Democrat families and Republican families. Um, you know, so there's conversations need to happen between those two tribes as well in churches. I mean, I've had people tell me horrendous stories. You know, I've fallen out with my sister. 
you know, I've fallen out with so-and-so, my work colleague, whom I've known for 30 years. I mean, you know, I often say that you know, I know politics is important, but to destroy lifetime relationships over some of these things is absolutely, it's crazy. So it is as well. So again, the church has to create this space to try to find the common good and what does that look like. And that's not easy. I'm not saying that this is kind of, we're going to press the fast forward button here. But I often ask the question, if you don't do it, what are the alternatives? And I think the alternative for the society is, I, and I know the United States pretty well, I have lots of close friends here, friends who are Republicans, friends who are Democrats. My concern is if you don't do it, that this could backfire on you in a way, maybe not in the next couple of years, but in 10 or 20 years, you could end up with some catastrophe here that nobody's even foreseen. And you know, if world history tells you anything is, you know, the sooner you deal with issues, the better. Because in our context, the more they solidify, the more difficult they were to stop. And once violence gets a hold in society, it is not easy bringing it to an end. And I know that from personal experience. So, Gary, we want to thank you for, for being with us again. And, and I think there's great encouragement for us to, um, to be a, a public church and uh, to be uh, that kind of presence in this part of the world. Um, we wish you uh, a wonderful stay here in Atlanta and busy teaching, and we look forward to seeing you again. Uh, but thank you for being with us today. Thanks, Gary.